Boy, what, I mean, you can't beat a message like that for Missions Week, right? That's good stuff. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 20, if you would. <clears throat> Acts chapter 20 tonight. <clears throat> I don't know. Who knows? Maybe I'll have problems with my voice tonight. I think there's a good message here somewhere. <clears throat> Great passage, at least we're dealing with. May the devil be fighting me double time tonight. But uh, Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17 tonight. All right, Acts chapter 20. Thanks, brother. And we're going to begin in verse 17 tonight, and then we'll move along. Again, uh, excited about our missions. Almost 60 this morning, and we'll see what else comes in tonight, as well as maybe over the next couple of weeks, and trust the Lord to uh, do just a, a great work there. Uh, chapter 20, verse 17, the Bible says, And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, called the elders of the church, and they were come to him. He said unto them, <clears throat> Ye know from the first day that I came, in and came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you at all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind and with many tears and temptations, which befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have shewed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I go bound in the Spirit into Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Spirit, excuse me, the Holy Ghost, witnesseth in every city, saying that my bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. <clears throat> Miletus <clears throat> was a city of considerable size. It was of great importance. Ephesus was about 30 miles away from Miletus. Paul here in the passage is summoning to these Ephesian elders or to these preachers to meet him. He wanted them to come from Ephesus to Miletus so that he could bear his heart, so that he could share his heart with them. Now one would say, well, why wouldn't Paul himself make the journey? Why didn't he just simply go there instead of having them come? Well, first of all, the Apostle Paul was probably a pretty busy man. Not only that, but we know also that <clears throat> there in Ephesus, he had had a number of concerns and a number of problems in the past. I mean, <clears throat> if he would have went there, it would have been, first of all, a two-stage two, uh, journey, there and back, which would probably take about two, three, four days each way, and then he would find his way back ultimately. He would be pressed to stay there. They wouldn't want him to leave. And then he might even be involved in another riot. He'd had one before there. And so, in order to avoid all of that, he says, why don't you, gentlemen, come to me? We're going to have ourselves a little conference, and we're going to try to encourage you, and I'm going to share my heart with you. In verses 18 and 19, we are told here <clears throat> that when they were come, he said some things to them. He taught them some things. Paul had ministered in Ephesus for about two and a half years. For the first three months, of course, he ministered there in the synagogue. And then, of course, he continued ministering uh, to the people there <clears throat> in that city. Now, <clears throat> he's, going to, he's going to challenge these elders at this point. He's going to say, now listen, you know my life. It was an open book. 
You know how I lived. Go ahead and examine my life. Uh, he had set an example, a very good example for the Ephesian elders. He had set a good example for the people. He was a very humble man. His ministry was very humble. He took himself upon himself to have a lowly service. Although he did many great things, Paul the Apostle was not one to pat himself on the back. He wasn't one to somehow elevate himself. That wasn't what he was about. He was a humble servant. He wasn't haughty. He wasn't proud. He wasn't arrogant. He didn't lord over the people there in Ephesus in the least. He took a humble place and he did a humble work for the Lord Jesus Christ. He had demonstrated before these people the mind of Christ. As a matter of fact, in the book of Philippians, he makes the statement, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It goes on to say in verse 8, who humbled himself. The Lord Jesus humbled himself. Paul the apostle humbled himself. Every servant of God, if he seeks to be pleasing in the sight of a holy God, must humble themselves. And that is exactly the example that the Apostle Paul gave to these elders at Ephesus as he cries out to them, calling them unto himself. He's going to remind them of these things. He set before them a godly example of sorrow, of godly sorrow. There, while he was with these people in Ephesus, he was found frequently in tears, according to the passage. As a matter of fact, he wept over their sin. He wept over them in their sadness. He wept over them as he was bearing precious seed, as he went about weeping, bearing precious seed. You could always find the Apostle Paul with a tear in his eye because he had such a love and a concern for the people of God in Ephesus. <clears throat> his record spoke for itself. No amount of persecution could sidetrack him from that determination that he had for them to know Christ. And so he worked night and day diligently. And as he's calling them out in verse 20 and 21, he says, you know how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. That expression, kept back, interesting expression. Matter of fact, it comes from, if you will, sort of Luke's medical vocabulary. Luke, of course, was a doctor. We know that. The word itself is hypostello, or hupostello, excuse me. And that word used means it has to do with holding back food from patients. Holding back food from patients. He says, I've held, I've kept back nothing. Just like, uh, he, he says, I, I, I kept back nothing. I, I've always spread a full table. I always shared the truth. Even though many are tempted to hold back the word of God, to keep from others because it may be considered unpalatable, difficult to receive. The Apostle Paul says, no, I kept back nothing. I gave it to you straight. I made sure that when I laid the table out, it was all there, like it or not. He kept nothing back that was profitable for them. Profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. He goes on to say, I've showed you and I have taught you. How did he do that? He did that by his life and by lips. He did that by exposition. He did that by example. Paul was himself a living epistle. 
literally known by all men and read by all men. And may I say tonight that each and every one of us are living epistles. Good, bad, or indifferent, people are watching your life. They will draw conclusions of God's grace, of God's mercy, of God's character, of God's person, of God's holiness based on your testimony. He kept back nothing. He showed them and taught them. How did he do that? He did it publicly and from house to house, he says. He taught them publicly first, as we mentioned, in the synagogue and then in the school of Tyrannus. And then ultimately, he teaches them privately by going from door to door and from house to house. You know, there was likely not a house in Ephesus that had not been called upon by the Apostle Paul, whose door had not been knocked, whose life had not been touched somehow, some way. His method, very simple. Go where the people are and don't expect them to come to you. That's how simple it was. Isn't that why we knock on doors? Isn't that why we do our pass house? Isn't that why we go to places and witness to people and share the gospel? Is that why? Is that not why we go to hospitals? Isn't that why we go to family reunions? Isn't that why we do what we do to take the gospel to a people who will not come to us? Isn't that why we have faith promise at Community Baptist Temple? Because there are people that will never come to us. And if we do not go to them, they'll never hear. As far as the Apostle Paul was concerned, he was no respecter of persons, regardless of color or creed, race or religion. Every person was someone for whom Christ died, someone who needed the word of God, someone that needed a word from heaven. His message was to the point. He didn't beat around the bush. It was simply repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Turn from self and turn from sin unto the Savior. Now, Paul is going to Jerusalem. He wanted to go to Jerusalem before. His heart was to go to Jerusalem. To finally go back to a city that he had once persecuted. To a people that he had divided. He had wrecked and ruined homes and wrecked and ruined lives in Jerusalem. And all those years of service, I can only imagine that his great heart and desire was to go back and to mend some of those broken homes and relationships to somehow bring them comfort and strength. But yet he was never permitted by the God of heaven. But now, now in verse 22... He speaks of the fact that he's going to Jerusalem, but this time he is bound in spirit. Not only was he firmly resolved to go, but he was under a kind of a spiritual constraint, somehow being moved and motivated by the Holy Spirit itself, himself. In verse 23, as we draw nigh to the end of the passage, we read there, it says, Say that the Holy Ghost witnessed in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me there. <laughs> he knew what he was in for. He knew that going to Jerusalem meant 
He was in for a rough time. The Holy Spirit had told him so. He would be arrested. He would be afflicted. He knew it in his innermost being, his soul. God had made it clear, but yet, in spite of it all, he was still determined to go. And then we come to verse 24. But none of these things moved me. What a powerful statement. None of these things, but none of these things moved me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Paul would have another ten years before Nero would finally snuff his life out. But due to his resolve to go to Jerusalem, he would spend the majority of those in prison. But it didn't matter to Paul. Paul looked from a higher perspective. He lived on a different plane than most of us. He saw things from a spiritual perspective, an eternal perspective. Self-preservation wasn't very high on his priority list. Did you get that? He was prepared to lose both life and his liberty or freedom for the cause of Christ so that men, women, boys, and girls could be saved. He says, none of these things move me. I'm not concerned about prison. I'm not concerned about, about being persecuted. I'm not the least bit concerned about whether my life ends or it continues. <clears throat> None of these things move me. When writing to the Romans, he referred to himself as a sheep for the slaughter in Romans 8.36. See, the important thing to the Apostle Paul was simply to fulfill his ministry, the ministry that had been entrusted to him, and to ultimately bear witness in life or in death to both the Jew and the Gentile, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what mattered to him. He said none of these things move me. His only concern, his greatest goal and desire was to reach the lost and to honor his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can I ask you tonight, what moves you? What moves you tonight? What moves me? I want to share three things that we need to, to move us tonight. Some things that need to move. This, the message is called, What Moves You? But there are going to be three thoughts tonight I want to share. And then we'll be done. We're going to move quickly. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you. We thank you, Father, for the simplicity of your word. We thank you, Father, for just the, 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 the word of God and for the, the spirit of God who drives home these truths. Lord, we thank you for the Apostle Paul who was faithful to the very end, who helps us, Lord, and 
who has instructed us and encouraged us. And Lord, we pray, dear God, that you would just be glorified in our lives tonight, in our listening tonight, and our living. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> First of all, we need a faith that moves us to go. We need a faith that moves us to go. <clears throat> Take your Bible, if you would, turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. In this particular passage, we read of a man that exercised great faith in God. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, from thy father's house into a land that I will shew thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great. Thou shalt be blessed, uh, be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him. And Lot went with him, and Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance and that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan, and into the land of Canaan they came. The Bible teaches us of a man who's called out from among his kindred, mauled out from among his brethren leaving house and home and family and job and future to follow a God who said, follow me into an unknown place and I will make of thee a great nation. I'll do a marvelous work in your life. I can only imagine that Abraham's mom and dad and Abraham's brothers and sisters probably said, hey, where are you going? Well, I'm going to Canaan. Why? What's in Canaan? I don't know. Why are you going? God told me. God told me to go. Are you crazy? You're leaving a job? You're leaving your family? You're leaving your life behind? Well, I'm just going to go like God said. But why? Because I just believe God. He had a faith that moved him, moved him to go. And you know, we need a faith that moves us to go as well. A faith that moves us to go is a faith that, number one, incorporates our family. It's interesting to note that the Bible says, and Abraham took Sarai, his wife. He had no children at that point. So Sarai was his family. He took his family. May I say that when you have a faith that moves you to go, it will definitely include your family. It will incorporate and include your family. What a sad thing it is to watch preachers try to do the ministry without including their families. What a pitiful, pitiful example it is to watch people of God, men in their homes, Say, this is for me, but I won't require my family 
to follow. What a sad situation it is today. In our world, in the Christian life, we have preachers who put their wives in their home, in their little places, and say, you go ahead and take care of the kids, I'll do my job. Man, listen, when you have a faith that moves you to go, it includes your family. We're all going. It's time to go soul winning. It's time to go to church. It's time to go to Sunday school. It's time to go to church. It's time to, to, to take a trip to the conference. It's time for us all to serve Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful thing? And that's exactly what Abraham did. He took his family. Not only that, but a faith that moves us to go is a faith that motivates others. Not only does it incorporate our family, but it motivates others. He goes on to say, and Lot went with him. It took his, his nephew with him. Others got excited about the fact that he was fired up for God. Man, have you ever gotten fired up for God? Have you ever gotten really on fire? You've been in, you love souls or you, you love the word of God and someone says, man, what's going on? Man, I'm going out souling this week. Can I go with you? You know what? When you have a faith that moves you to go, there'll be somebody that want to go with you. You're going to find that's going to motivate others. It's going to move them. Not only that, but we see here that not only does it incorporate our families, motivate others, but it compensates all. You say, what do you mean? It says, in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Because Abraham had a faith that moved him. That moved him to go. The whole world was blessed. You're blessed tonight because of that faith. I'm blessed tonight because of that faith. We're asking men and women, boys and girls at times, to have a faith that moves them to go. But you don't have to go overseas to, be, to possess that kind of faith. You just have to have a faith that moves you and moves you to go. To go soul winning. To go to church. To go to prayer. To reach out to a world that's lost and dying and going to hell. We need a faith that moves us to go. But not only that, we need a love that moves us to give. A love that moves us to give. Look, if you will, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Second Corinthians chapter 8. I want you to <clears throat> look at verse 1. We're going to read through verse 9. The Bible says, moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. And then in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power, I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God, insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, 
See that ye abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. We need a love that moves us, that moves us to give. I say, what do you mean? Well, moves us to give self. The first thing we see in verse 5 is our love for Christ will move us to give ourselves first. These gave themselves first. When they gave themselves, let me tell you something, nothing else was very hard to give any longer. You must first give self. That's what love will do. Love will move us, will cause us to give self. Love will also cause us to give sacrificially. Now again, I think as Brother Runyon said the other day, we might want to remove the word sacrifice out of the American vocabulary for now. I thought he was on target there. Inconvenience, he said, ought to be the new word. A vast virus database has been updated. Because nobody's going hungry today. Nobody's losing weight because they can't afford to eat. We as Americans do not know anything of suffering, or sacrificing, excuse me. We know a little bit of suffering, but we don't know a whole lot about sacrificing. At least not in the sense of the New Testament early church. But when we have a love that moves us to give, it'll be a love that gives sacrificially. It'll drive us to go beyond our ability. Look at verse 2 and 3. He says, How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded. These were people being persecuted for their faith. These were people who were being made very uncomfortable, who potentially were losing life and limb. And the Bible tells us here that how that in great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded. They had great joy and they had deep poverty. How's that possible? In America, when people lose their job, they're ready to kill themselves. In America, when we feel we don't have the newest sneakers, we're ready to beat somebody up, steal them from somebody because we can't live without the newest sneakers. We can't live without the, the most updated phone. We can't live without having the most, most technologically advanced computers. We just don't get it, do we? These people were poor, not just poor. They abounded in their poorness. They were happy and joyful in the midst of their miserable state of persecution and poverty. Isn't that an amazing testimony? We look right over these verses so many times. And then we justify our misery and say, but you don't understand how difficult it's been for me. How about reading this passage? How about considering their plight? How about facing their troubles? How about us considering the fact that it may not be very long. We may be sitting where they are. The realizing that with the homosexual agenda, the way it's going, you will not have the freedom to preach this gospel.
gospel without being put in prison. Just out in Texas, just this last week or two, there was a lesbian leader there that said, you know what? I'm the new mayor. And I don't like the fact that there are some preachers preaching against homosexuality. I want every one of their messages. I want every one of them. And she subpoenaed them. And then when there was a great uprising and people said, what are you talking about? We have the First Amendment right of free speech. We're allowed to proclaim the truth. We're allowed to preach what we choose. We're allowed to stand on that book. She got all bent out of shape and said, I don't understand what they're so upset about. Let me tell you something. It won't be long if we keep the rate we're going that you're going to begin to pay and so will I for my faith. We will then know what real sacrifice is. We'll understand. I used to say, boy, I pity my children and then in the ministry at one point they're going to go to jail. They will have to pay for their faith. They will understand what the Apostle Paul and John and Silas and Barnabas had to deal with. They will know. Now I say I will. I wouldn't be surprised in the next 10 years we see pre preachers going to prison for preaching the gospel. I wouldn't be surprised. We need a love that moves us to give self, to give sacrificially. And in this particular passage, it's referring to primarily finances, folks. It's talking about money. Verse 8. A love that moves us will cause us to give self sacrificially, but also sincerely. It says, and I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, and to prove the sincerity of your love. Our giving will testify of our love. It will be proportionate to our love. Give little, love little. That's what he's saying. Someone says, I don't, well, where does that say it? Well, you read it. You tell me what it means. Listen to me. We, we like to hold on to things. We like, and they're, they're mine. No, they're not. God gave them to you. We, we've got to get to the place where we understand there's an eternity that awaits us. This is not, this is not my, uh, this is not my home. As it says, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I won't have to, what? In this world anymore, thank you, I forgot that part. Can't feel at home here no more. What's money, folks? Just something that holds you back? In most cases, it dictates our direction. It guides our footsteps. It determines our futures. We allow it to have every effect on our life. God help us as a parents, Christian parents, not to somehow brand in our children the fact that money's what really matters in life. Let me tell you, it's not. The Apostle Paul is saying, here's a people. Listen, we can turn around and accumulate all the wealth we want, but if you're going to stand for Jesus Christ, Sooner or later, someone's going to come take your wealth. Just like they did back then. Someone's going to come along and say, we're confiscating what you have. If you can't keep your mouth shut, if you will not stop talking about Jesus, then we'll just go ahead and confiscate your land, confiscate your, your bank account, 
Take everything you've got. Oh, your 401k? Gone. That's what they did to the Christians through history. Why do we think we're going to escape it? We better pray and beg God to turn something around in our country, or we may know what that's like. I'm going to have to worry about not getting Social Security. They may just take what I have away. So I said, that's pretty gloom and doom. Have you been watching the news? Have you, have, you been, have you even considered where it all ends? I'm not saying that I walk around. I sleep good every night. That doesn't bother me a bit. I'm trusting the Lord with that thing. Amen. But sooner or later, if we continue on the direction we're going, we got real problems. We need a love then that moves us to give. Not only, not only a faith that moves us to go, but a love that moves us to give. There are people around the world that need us to give liberally. God help us to do just that. Finally, number three, we need a hope that moves us to gaze. A hope that moves us to gaze. Turn, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. How real, how real is this thing called the Christian life to you? I mean, really, how real is it? I mean, when you hold the Bible in your hand, is it just a book? You know, is that what it is, really? I mean, I'm just saying, we, we, when, we look at, when we look at our world, we look at our lives, and we look at our families, what is it that we really want? It was funny, uh, like I said, I, was, I shared uh, the other night about Jared. Jared, our missionary, him and his wife, Joy, um, going to the UK, England, and how, you know, somebody shared with me this story, and so I shared it with you the other night, but how, how Sandy, it's good to see you tonight. I didn't realize you were there, right? But um, how, how that when he went to that camp that, that summer, he was headed on a baseball scholarship to college, all expense-paid trip to get a fine education, ultimately a wonderful, wonderful education that would provide him a great paying career, and he got there, and the Lord said, I want you in the ministry. His parents, and I got this from the horse's mouth, had a heart attack. Everything short of having to get... I mean, they just about, what? Are you kidding me? Just like Jared said, they had invested tons of money, tons of time, rammed him all around in these traveling leagues and everything else. to find that he's going to be a preacher. I hope you wouldn't be so upset at first. Oh, they came around and they understood that the right thing to do would be happy, be happy for their son because he's following God's leadership. But I don't think that was the first thing they thought. Not based on the response that he shared with me. I would hope that you as parents would not have such high expectations financially for your kids, but you'd have high expectations spiritually first. Amen. So I'd hope. I'm not convinced that American Christians could care less about spirituality. I think as a whole, American Christians care more about being prospering, uh, prospering financially. But I hope that's not the case in this church at least. 
In general, I think we'd all agree it's probably pretty close. But here today, in a good, fundamental, Bible-believing, Baptist church, I would hope that all parents in the room say, man, I would be excited for my child if they made a decision for the ministry. I would hope. We need a hope that moves us to gaze. And you say, why'd you share all that? Because ultimately, you will never feel that way. I think of the Dixons, or the daughter that has to go back to the Philippines. How can you be happy about sending your daughter halfway around the world? I'm sure they're not happy about it, but, but I mean, in the sense that they're not happy, but they're happy for her that she's obeying the Lord, that spiritually her focus and emphasis is on spiritual things and eternal things. I mean, at least I've not recognized any bitterness except from the mom. <laughs> the rest of them are doing okay. <laughs> I'm teasing. But you better have your eyes on eternity. Because if you don't, you're not going to be able to deal with that very well. And as parents, it's going to be tough anyway. But we've got to be able to give our kids back to the Lord. And it starts with a hope. And a hope that moves us to gaze. First Thessalonians, we're there already. It says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which also sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Amen. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. I didn't say we need a hope that moves us to gaze, to gaze upward first and foremost. I mean, moves us to gaze upward. In the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verse 37, the Bible says, But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. He ultimately goes on to say in verse 42, Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. Now we need a hope today that says, Man, Jesus is coming back. I'm gazing upward, looking for his return. Not only do we need to gaze upward, but we need to gaze inward. To gaze inward. In the book of Titus, turn there if you would, chapter 2, verse 11. I want you to notice what the Bible says here. Again, we're looking for the return of Christ, yes, but that return of Christ causes us to gaze upward, but it should also cause us to gaze inward. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly righteously and godly in this present world looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great god and our savior jesus christ Amen. may i say those things go together you don't just say well let me just pull out that verse 13 i'm i'm gazing upward no the reason why the the, the fact is because you are gazing upward because jesus is coming back you ought to be gazing inward, ensuring that you're denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, that you're living soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. You ought to be evaluating your heart. I need to be evaluating my heart each and every day. Why? Because he's coming back. I've got a great hope today that Jesus is going to return. And because he's going to return, I'm looking up, gazing upward, but also I'm gazing inward, 
seeking to cleanse my heart, trying to be pure and clean and holy as he's holy. I don't want to be ashamed at his coming, according to 2 John. And finally, not only gazing upward and gazing inward, but gazing outward. To gaze outward because of his return. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 through 8, the Bible says, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others. But let us watch and be sober. That sober doesn't mean sober as in not drinking. It means sober-minded. Let's just make it simple. Level-headed, practical, commonsensical, following biblical truths. Cautious and careful. For they that sleep, sleep in the night. They that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love. For, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. There are people that are not looking. They're not gazing upward. They're not gazing inward. They're lost without Jesus Christ. And the return of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to prompt us. It ought to motivate us. It ought to move us to gaze outward. To see the hurt, the heartache to recognize the sin that will ultimately drag them to a devil's hell. It ought to move us. What moves you tonight? Paul the Apostle was moved by the Holy Ghost. He was moved by faith, love, and hope that compelled him to give his life and even surrender his liberty for the cause of Christ. His burden for souls, the souls of mankind, and the increase of the kingdom of God was so great that when confronted with persecution and personal toil, he could honestly say, none of these things move me. That's not what moves me. That's not going to get me to leave my worship of the Lord, that's not going to cause me to fail to witness and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm unmovable in that regard. The only thing that moves me is my faith. The only thing that moves me is my love. The only thing that moves me is my hope in Jesus Christ. And I believe today, I believe today that the Apostle Paul was moved by a faith that moved him to go. That with a love that moved him to give and with a hope that moved him to gaze. You know what? The Bible teaches us over there in Corinthians that there's faith, hope, and love. You want to know something? We need all three of those things. And we need him to move us. So often, we can be moved by other things. God help us not to allow anything but God himself, the love we have for him, the faith that we have in him, and the hope that we have in Christ, 
May those be the only things that move us. May they move us to service for the King. A church. What is it? As well, it's a place where we get together and we have a good time and we fellowship one with another. A church really is a place where people that have been saved come together for the express purpose of being trained and taught how to reproduce what just transpired and took place in their life. That's why we're really here. Not just to be fed, but to ultimately feed others. Not just to be served, but to serve others. What moves you? May God help us to be moved for the right reasons, not the wrong. And may we, like the Apostle Paul, say, none of these things move me. He moves me. My faith in Him moves me. My love for Him moves me. And my hope of His return moves me. Father, we love you. We thank you again for all that you do 